0: Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. In the name of of, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's good to be here, good to be in the house of the Lord on the second Sunday of February. And uh, I did want to point out, before we um, moved any further, there is a slight uh, misprint in the bulletin. If uh, you'll turn with me to the back page, to the financial report from February 2nd. It says that we needed... $154,000 as of last week, and we had received $155,000. And then those parentheses are supposed to mean that um, there is a negative, that there's a deficit of $1,490. That's actually incorrect. There's actually a surplus in the budget um, this week, and uh, that's something I think we should celebrate. And I just wanted to let you all know uh, how grateful we are at the church that uh, you have been very generous. Um, over these uh, last weeks and years even, and uh, continue to make sure that the ministries that take place both within the walls of this church and outside the walls of this church take place each and every week. So I just wanted to point that out to you all. Um, Let's now move on to our scripture lesson, which comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Now, you'll remember, if you were here last week, that Pastor Christina also preached from Matthew chapter 5. She was reading um, the first 12 verses, which are known as the Beatitudes. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we give you thanks for this day, and we give you thanks for the light of the world, which is Jesus Christ. May we reflect that light back to the world. In his name, amen. Thanks, Kelly. Looks like most everybody knew that song. That's good. Um, I have an image that kind of comes to mind when I hear that song. I think about a little girl in a white dress and a church pageant holding up a candle and singing this little light of mine, right? Um, Which might be an image that many of you have as well. But uh, this little light of mine um, actually has a a, a little bit different uh, history um, that is very, very powerful When we hear this little light of mine, we think of something, I don't know, something sentimental, something cute. Um, Whenever we say words like little, I think sometimes it kind of tames the song. You know, like when we say something's dear or sweet. Um, But actually the song is an African-American spiritual. It was sung in black churches many years ago just as they were preparing to leave the church and go back out into the world. And most significantly, it was joined with We Shall Overcome to be one of the anthems of the Civil Rights Movement. It was sung as African Americans were preparing to go out and make a witness to the world around them. So I'd like to put in your mind this other image associated with the song, an image of people called into a movement and willing to make sacrifices for that movement. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. The song is obviously based on our text from this morning, uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, so let your light shine before others, that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus had in mind changing the world. You can see that, especially in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where we find this text for today. You know, the Sermon on the Mount takes up three entire chapters in the Bible. This particular passage about shining your light comes near the beginning. It be, it's in verse 13. The first 12 verses are those Beatitudes that Pastor Christina preached on last week. You know, Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. You remember that? Blessed are you when they say all manner of evil against you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake and for the gospel. And then these verses. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. This is not kindergarten cuteness. This is kingdom strategy. It's even more remarkable when you realize that the New Testament uh, is filled with images about Jesus being the light of the world. He's also called the light of the Gentiles. The Gospel of John especially uses this metaphor of light to describe who Jesus is and what he has come to do. It says, in him was light, and there light was the life of the world. The light has come into the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. So when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works, What he's saying is if you call yourself Christian, then your vocation is no different from mine. I was the light of the world. Now you are the light of the world. Through my life, through my good deeds, through my love, I brought other people back to God. I reconciled them back to God. Now that's your job, to reconcile people to God. Again, not kindergarten stuff, kingdom stuff. Joe and Moe were carpenters. Joe was always finding ways to tease Moe, who wasn't too bright. So one night, John, Joe, excuse me, Joe shined his flashlight up to the second story of a house, and he said, Moe, would you climb up that light beam and get my hammer for me? And Moe said, how dumb do you think I am? Joe said, excuse me? Uh, Moe said, I know you all too well. You'd let me get halfway up that beam, and then you'd turn the light off. Well, like I said, Mo wasn't too bright. But it reminds me of a story of someone who was known to be extremely bright, Albert Einstein. Einstein showed up at the institute where he was working one morning, hobbling around with a cane. And it seems that during the night, he'd stubbed his big toe. So he was telling his colleague all about it. He says, This has happened five or six times from walking around in the darkness. And the really annoying part is that every time it happens, I've got to go to the hospital and make sure that I haven't broken my, my toe. And the colleague said, now, wouldn't it save you some trouble if you would just turn on a light? And Einstein said, oh, I never thought of that. Isn't it better, asked the little song of faith, to light one candle than to stumble in the dark? Our task as followers of Jesus is to provide light for a world that lives in darkness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Once there lived a man who wanted to determine which of his children would inherit his business. And so he gave them each a coin, and he says, now I want you to go buy something with this coin that will fill the house. The son thought about it and tried to think of something that he could buy that would fill his entire house with just one coin. He decided a load of straw. And so he got a load of straw, and then when he put it in the house, he realized it didn't even cover the floor. The younger child, a daughter, chose a wiser course. She spent her coin on candles. And as she lit each candle, the light filled the house. The happy father said to his daughter, to you I give over my business. You have shown the wiser choice. There's not enough darkness in the entire world, says Robert Alden, to put out the light of even one small candle. And that's true. No wonder the imagery of light comes up again and again in the Bible. Light was the first thing that God created. You remember that back in Genesis chapter 1? Some of the first words in the Bible are, let there be light. And there was light. Scientists tell us that all matter and energy come from light, and our life depends on it. Furthermore, if we were deep down in the earth, deep down in a cave in which there was no light, it was pitch black, total darkness, it would still not be dark enough to extinguish one small light. People in Bible times knew all about darkness. Light was a luxury. It was very expensive. There were no street lamps back during that time. On a dark night, if you were traveling, the world was a scary place. Roads were treacherous, and criminals would ply their trade in the darkness. You were thankful for cities that were built on hills, for a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, says Jesus. Many of the villages in Judea were built on summits or on the side of mountains and could be seen from far off. And from a great distance, one knew the location of the next village because of the light that shone from that village. Perhaps even as Jesus spoke these words... He pointed to such a village for his disciples to see. But darkness was not only a problem on the road. At the end of your journey, light was still a luxury. And Palestinian homes were pretty dark. They usually just had one small window. Again, no electricity, no light bulbs, of course. Their light consisted of a lamp, which was a bowl filled with oil that had a wick in it. And when they needed light, the lamp was placed up on a lamp stand. The most difficult part, though, of keeping the light going was having to relight the wick, so people didn't do that. Um, you know, they didn't have matches, of course. They didn't have these little doohickeys that were so helpful nowadays. As a result, no one ever wanted to put the light out. So what they would do is they would take the light, uh, if they were going out somewhere, you know, it was obviously it'd be too dangerous to just leave it running, and they would put it under, like, this earthen vessel, Okay, that's where that next part of the song, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Okay, so they would they would take it and they would put it under this earthen vessel so that it could burn and not burn the house down. Of course, that's not the purpose of lighting a light, though, is it? It's so that you can use it to see. Uh, So as soon as someone returned home, they would take it out of the earthen vessel and they would put it back up on the lampstand in order to illuminate the rest of the house. It was only natural then that light became such a popular metaphor. We just read it, or Jackson just read it, in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This church does not exist just to exalt a great teacher or a miraculous healer. We exist to glorify the Son of God, who is the light that has come into the world and overcome the darkness of sin and death. It's only as the light of Christ shines in our lives that our lives have meaning and purpose. So it's with all that in mind that we approach Christ's words about our role in this great drama. You are the light of the world, he said. You are. What an amazing compliment, and a rather awesome responsibility, quite frankly. These words are not spoken lightly, no pun intended. Just as Christ came to bring light to a world that's stumbling in the dark, we are to bring his light to the world in which we live. Just as his life was given to others, our life should do the same. Those of you who have studied communication are familiar with Albert Morabian's famous study on credibility in communication. In this study, they dealt with the question, what makes a person credible when they seek to communicate with other people? And he concluded that when we're speaking to someone else, our body language consists of 55% of the message that the other person actually receives. Our tone of voice accounts for 38% of the message the other person receives. And our actual words only account for 7% of the message the other person actually receives. So our body language accounts for 55 our tone for 38 and the actual words only 7%. And suddenly, I'm feeling a little nervous about speaking in front of you. In other words, in terms of credibility, Moravian finds concrete evidence that actions actually speak louder than words. It's important that we talk about our faith, but it's much more important that we actually live out our faith, or to use the common vernacular, it's more important to walk the walk than it is to talk the talk. That's how we shine our light to the world. Reverend Christopher Henry tells about a friend of his named Sarah, who spent six weeks one summer along the U.S.-Mexico border working with an organization called No More Deaths. The organization provides humanitarian aids to migrants who are crossing the desert into the United States. Several thousand people have died over the last decade trying to cross the border into the U.S., most from dehydration or exhaustion due to um, the oppressive heat, the meager supplies. Trust me, no matter how you feel about the flow of illegal immigration into our country, it is not right by Christian standards that these people, many of which are women and children, should die in the desert. Well, Sarah spent the summer handing out bottles of water and granola bars and bandaging feet and seeking medical attention for those who had the greatest needs. And seeking to let her light shine for Christ, she discovered something rather unexpected. She discovered a new closeness to God. Her Christian faith grew as she spent more time with men, women, and children in need. People who had been forced to leave behind everything they knew in order to search for a better life for their families. She said, I don't think it's because I was praying more, and I don't think it was because I was reading the Bible more. She said, there's just something about being here and doing this that makes it all seem so real to me. That often happens when people give their life over to Christian service. They discover that the light within themselves grows in direct proportion to the light that they give away. Why are so many people today, even in church, experiencing such darkness in their lives? I think it's because we kept the light of Christ bottled up instead of lifting it up so that all the world could see. The light we are to shine is reflected light. It shone first in Jesus and his disciples, and then those who succeeded them. So the question now is, will we let the light shine? Will we pass it on to future generations? You know, I started college in the fall of 1989. And at the time, things were really starting to change in Eastern Europe. After decades of Soviet influence and control, the people began to demand more freedoms. Now, not just in Russia, but also in East Germany and Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and other countries. And honestly, it was all these changes that were taking place that led me to become a political science major. 1989, 90, 91, these were historic years, and honestly, it confounds me that it's gotten such little notice in the history books. Uh, the significance of that time, I think, has been completely overlooked. I know that in the future, that historians are going to look back and see that this was a really important hinge in history. If it had been an armed uprising, it would have been immortalized, because that's the way the world is used to handling these things. We'd commemorate it. We would know what to do with it. We'd build statues to the people who led the armies, but it wasn't an armed rebellion. It was a nonviolent change. It dismantled an entire empire through love. It began in several places, mostly in churches. In Leipzig, East Germany, it started at St. Nicholas Church. That's where the demonstrations began. They began with prayer meetings. Then the people moved into the streets holding candles, much the same way the people in the civil rights movement would move out into the streets after praying and singing together. The police, they tried to break up these prayer meetings, but the people, they just kept coming. The police would sit throughout the congregation and try to take up all the seats so that the people couldn't sit. Well, they would just stand along the walls or up in the balconies or out in the narthex. And finally, on an October night in 1989, 70,000 people in Leipzig filled the streets of that city. They filled the main square, each one carrying a candle. They expected to be met with force. They expected that the troops would disperse them, but the orders never came. The security chief in his headquarters overlooking the plaza in downtown Leipzig looked out over this crowd of 70,000 people, each one of them holding a candle, and he said, we planned for everything. We anticipated everything except candles. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You are a city set on a hill. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Holy God. We are so grateful that you have poured the light of the world into our lives. Lord, may we in turn reflect that light back into a world that is stumbling through the dark. Lord, may we reflect the love of Jesus everywhere we go. In his name we pray. Amen.